1,000 of the Pirate Moon Podcast. <laughs> yeah. even? No, man, I'll tell you. It should have been 674 pause thousand. I'm yeah. still going right, with that. Give us another number. All right. Well, if it's been a while since you... Uh, since you heard us with a fresh episode on the Pirate Moon Podcast, it's because you missed it. We we actually we've been recording almost hourly, haven't we, since mid December? Nonstop. Yeah, exactly. Marathon. Yeah. So keep mm-hmm. looking, you'll find them. Thousands of episodes back there. Uh but none of them as good as this one. We are once again coming to you practically live from high above the Mellow Mushroom in Metropolitan Downtown Franklin, Tennessee. I'm your host, Nate Larkin. Here with uh, the gang of co-hosts uh, to my right, as you can see me right there. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you mean politically, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Newton Dominey coming to you again live. Well, practically live from high above the Mellow Mushroom in downtown Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, I'm your host, Nate Larkin, here with uh, to my right. Uh, politically? Is that, yes, is it? yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Newton Dominey. Uh, here also our peerless, fearless engineer, Mondo Grimes. And joining us from the left coast. The no, no, to your right, morally. Right. Any <laughs> <laughs> other way that matters. Exactly. Just happening to be on Aaron the west Gordon. coast. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and we also have a terrific guest today that I think we're gonna we're gonna bring in early. We're gonna talk to him later. But uh, what we have in the offing, I'm ready for a mini meeting. Yeah, cool. Uh, until then, a little ca- a little catching up. Uh, we jest. This is not episode five thousand. No, no. Uh, we took some time off over the holidays. Busy, busy, traveling a lot. Uh, Mondo. As I don't have a microphone. Yeah, 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 there yeah. we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so holiday time, man. This January is gone. Yeah, I know. It's, it's sailing. New, it's weird. Like, yeah. where'd it go? It's uh, already been a month since Christmas. I know, man. That's yeah. scary. Uh, trying to figure out what 14 is all about. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what's happening. It's uh, an awkward stage between 13 and 15. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. Not quite yeah. right. It's going where it didn't used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, things are cool, this man. Is the- Puberty of the next century. Yes, yes. It's the uh, onset of puberty. <laughs> no, holidays are good, man. Uh, just uh, got through all that and uh, getting ramped up back in, you know, getting, you know, business is real, usually pretty dead around yeah. holiday time. People take these extended vacations, start answering our phone around the 15th or 16th. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, stuff yeah. like that. So, but things are cool, man. Uh, excited to get back in the flow of things and good to see all you guys now. It's good. Yeah, I have noticed that everybody just kind of slacks off. They stop oh, doing yeah. podcasts. Absolutely. <laughs> they go from episode 100 and something to 5,000. <laughs> just like that. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, but things are good, dude. How about you? Uh, you know, it's. Uh, Allie and I had a wonderful Christmas. All the grandkids, kids and the grandkids came to the house. Um, my wife. This is interesting. She, uh, as you know, she's in recovery from cancer treatment. Turns out the radiation had some effect on her. It, it weakened her bones. She wound up with stress fractures in both legs. So uh, now she's uh, she's in a wheelchair for a, for a few weeks uh, while those heal. So uh, yeah, we're getting a taste of that. Uh, schlepping the wheelchair around from 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 from. Uh, 
engagement to engagement. But you know what? I am just so grateful that we're having the quality time together that we're having. And, you know, Allie has always been very self-sufficient, and she's more and more being forced to rely on me, which is good for her and good for me. Hmm. And uh, so it has been a very um, special time. And now it's officially over because, you know, not only are we doing the podcast today, Allie and I actually took the Christmas tree down last night. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Better than before. I mean, it's before Easter, so, you yeah, That's know. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What kind of dead stick of a, a tree was that? <laughs> Tell me I wanted, it wasn't real. Yeah, I, no, I wanted to take it. Yeah, have you ever done a Christmas tree burn? We used to do that over at Steve Mason's house. Everybody bring their tree, you know, light a bonfire, and toss that sucker on there. That'd be awesome. Oh, it's unbelievable. A nice dry tree like the one we had, the flames go 30 feet in the air. My little plastic tree would have been awesome. <laughs> the, the blue flames, the green flames coming off. Yeah. Way better. I, I really wanted to do a burn last night, but I don't think that the city of Franklin would have appreciated it. So it's sitting out on the sidewalk waiting for the trashman to take it away. And Nate, you got to go at the end of Ethiopia's uh, wet season to their muscal, their uh, festival of the cross. And that is all they do in the streets, in the main square in Addis Ababa. Huge piles of Christmas trees blazing biggest fires i've ever seen in my life really yes it's a whole nation doing what you're talking about really they make it into a national holiday kind of well there's they're they're celebrating the fact that you know they have the ark of the covenant in ethiopia they have the true cross in ethiopia so you know often it's not actually celebrating the person on the cross or what the ark was about but damn it they have it It sounds like it's Columbus really after a Buckeyes about. win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole city on fire. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're going to come back in a second with a mini meeting. But before, oh wait, Newton. Yeah. What? I'm here. Good gosh. Yeah. I have to get the update. Okay. From uh, from the from the big wide world of climbing. Yeah. And... So I still haven't shaved since Thanksgiving. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, You're looking positively patriarchal. Yeah, I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Since we did our last podcast, I have been to Iowa, and for all our Iowan listeners, okay, cool. It's a long drive. You can <laughs> you can you can keep it. <laughs> um, I'm, yeah. Oh man, that was cold. He's alienating our whole down. Iowa demographic. Yeah. I know. Um, should, we, should we have a map on the wall for every <laughs> week which state we say something bad uh, about? It was it was all right. I was done. That's a 27-hour car trip in a weekend. It, oh, yeah, it, it sucked. Um, yeah, and it's it's not like you arrive at Disneyland. No, <laughs> no. It was actually the weather was better in Iowa than it was here when we left. Yeah. Um, but it was still a long weekend, and um, yeah, it was it was a long weekend, and uh, they don't paint their state highways apparently in Iowa that came out of the budget, so the the midnight driving shift um, oh. was awesome. Really? Yeah. yeah, and windy. Uh, I was windy. There's nothing to, like, break up anything. It's just wind. Yeah. Um, I was, like, driving a kite crosswind through. <laughs> In the dark. Yeah. yeah. Um, luckily, everybody was asleep, so I don't know how scary it was. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so there was that. Um, and, I'm, man, I'm ready for spring. Yeah. Um, uh, went to North Carolina and skied last weekend with our church youth group. Yeah. Uh, that was really cool. Uh, it was better than the first skiing experience where I more slid rather than skied. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I'm rather ready for some warm weather activities. Um, yeah. You know, that reminds me. I did take one trip. I went out to Montana to the Great Plains Gathering. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Speak to our American Indian brothers out got, there. got a cool necklace in the process? I did, yeah. A choker, man. Don't call it a necklace. Sorry. It's actually armor. It's choker. Oh. It's designed for these, for like, to, to these protect your club throat dancing the... Indians out there? What? A, a choker. Were they, like, dropping E and going to the Indian club? <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah. I'm just trying to picture who's wearing these. Look yeah, at that yeah, turquoise yeah. choker on that guy. Inch, inch, inch. There goes our Electronica fan base. <laughs> Awesome. But it was very, very cool because these are, you know, these are these are believers. Although, and some guys drove, I mean, eight nine hours to come to this deal, right? Yeah. From nine tribes. Huh. Um, but uh, these are believers who really are committed to, um, you know, not accepting. They understand that they can be Native Americans and Christians. They don't have to become mm -hmm. Western Christians to be Christian. Yeah. Um, so, to me, one of the most moving parts of the weekend was at the end of the weekend, presented me with this choker, and then a young man with a tom-tom sang an honor song. Hmm. Wow. Uh, in, you know, Lakota or something. God, it yep. was... Lakota Sioux. Huh? Very cool. It was amazing. Is, yeah, the Lakota Sioux stuff's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So wonderful people, and they do. They understand uh, brotherhood. These guys do. Was that was that near the Rosebud? I don't know the reservation because they've they've had a classic discussion since the, I want to say the mid seventies when a Catholic priest on the Rosebud reservation started uh, these dialogues, uh -huh. and he actually wrote a book that I'm sure is out of print, but it's called the cross and the pipe or the pipe and the cross mm -hmm. and is just describing every step of the discussions between the native elders of the Lakota Sioux yeah. and the the missionaries. Yeah, yeah. And it is I learned more from that that was helpful while hanging out with Lakota Sioux than anything in the world. And it's just what you're saying. So beautiful. Why was I not invited to this? Where was the love at that moment? Yeah. I would have loved to go there. <laughs> I know you should have come. Well uh, I've been invited back to go uh, camping in the Beartooth Mountains, so maybe we ought to. Uh, they say we don't need to bring. We'll catch what we eat, and uh, wow. so, so maybe we should. Uh, maybe maybe you should come along. Anyway, all right. Okay, we'll be back. We'll be back in a minute. Bef uh, while we're gone, let's 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 play a song by uh, by Derek Webb. We'll be back in a minute here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. I learned to love the pain. 
Fantastic track from artist Derek Webb. Mr. Webb is singing about reconciliation and coming to a place where he can understand the church in a deeper way. In fact, this album seems to be, in my perspective, a bookend from his first solo album, She Must and Shall Go Free. We'll be talking more with Mr. Webb later, but first, the mini meeting. Can you, can you possibly be more smug? What was, was that? That was, that, but that was like grade A FM radio voice. Was really? That was, yeah, yeah, I was like, that was, okay. was uh, yeah. If it was, it was a radio version of the treat. Ruby Anchorman, I think he would have the lead, <laughs> <laughs> lead role. <laughs> okay, that voice you just heard is Derek Webb. Derek, will you, will you mind joining us in the in the mini minute? I'd be, I'd be, it'd be a pleasure. All right, okay. We don't, we don't do the whole thing. We do kind of a speed version of the meeting here. We get straight to the sharing. But first, we read this. My name's Nate. Hi, Nate. Hi, Nate. Okay, welcome to this mini-meeting of the Samson Society. Uh, we are a company of Christian men. We're also natural loners. We've recognized the dangers of isolation and are determined to escape them. Natural wanderers who are finding spiritual peace and prosperity at home. Natural liars who are now finding freedom in the truth. Natural judges who are learning how to judge ourselves aright. Natural strong men who are experiencing God's strength as we admit our weaknesses. As Christians, we meet at other times for worship, for teaching, and for corporate prayer. Today, however, we meet to talk. Our purpose is to assist one another in our common journey. We do so by sharing, honestly, out of our own personal experience, the challenges and encouragements of daily Christian living in a fallen world. Okay, we've now reached the sharing portion of our meeting. In sharing, we speak honestly out of our own experience. We tell the truth about ourselves, knowing that our brothers will listen to us in love and will hold whatever we say in strictest, strictest confidence. confidence. We try to keep our comments brief, taking care to leave plenty of time for Aaron. Uh, as a rule... <laughs> you are the longest talker of this group. I can't believe you said that. <laughs> we address... Uh, we address uh, our statements to the group as a whole rather than directing them toward any one person. As a rule, we refrain from giving advice to others or instructing them during the meeting, believing that such conversations are best reserved for private moments between friends. The suggested topic today is, well, why not? Reconciliation. Uh, but we're not confined to that subject. You may speak about any topic that's currently commanding your attention. The floor is now open. I'll jump in first. Uh, I'm Newton. Hi, Newton. Um, hey, Newton. Uh, reconciliation. When I when I think about it, um, I mean, just in terms of my story with God and the church, um, I've I felt pretty disenfranchised, pretty disappointed um, with God 
and with the church in my, um, I guess, early 20s up until probably I was almost 30. Like there was a decade where I was like, you know what? You guys can have church and I'll me and God will sort it out later. Um, and through uh, S.A. and through Samson and New Adam, um, I have been reconciled not just to um, God and to um, my wife, but I've been reconciled with the church. Um, but I kind of come back into it, uh, or I came back into it with a different perspective, with I feel where I, I wasn't afraid of authenticity. Um, and it hasn't been easy. Uh, I, I still find that I want to filter myself mm-hmm. when, I'm, when I'm in church. Like, church doesn't feel 100% safe to me, and I, I guess that's okay. Um, but I'm starting to understand that I've got something to offer a church Um, and that even if my story is a little bit filtered as I talk to like the youth group that I I work with, um, that I've got something there that that might help somebody else out. Um, But then I, I don't know, I just I also think of reconciliation in terms of how I reconcile myself as a Christian and a believer with somehow still being attractive to an unbelieving world and and balancing that and kind of like reconcile like you reconcile a bank statement. Um, You guys can't see that I'm trying to do balance scales with my hands. Um, But but to where where I'm balanced and I'm reconciled in that way where I can be who I am as a believer um, and, I don't know, almost... Because I think we we said something about making amends, um, but almost kind of like I feel like I can make amends for the church um, by just being a believer that is is open and honest about faith and doubt. And um, I don't know, it it's I guess it's still a squishy topic for me, um, but that's kind of what I think of when I think of reconciliation is balancing and um, like kind of. Uh, integrating um so that's what i got i'm newton thanks Newton. oh fine i'm aaron hey aaron Aaron. uh i am in the middle right now in the throes of figuring out how to reconcile with some folks uh but i have a feeling that there's not going to be a full or even reasonable confession on their side so we will not you know the word confession is so important to me since it just means to say the same thing and I know by the end of this conversation we will not be confessing we won't be speaking the same thing and so then what do I do and in my own the way I am wired I am built for justice and when someone continues to live a lie at my expense, my justice hackles go like DEFCON, whichever way's the bad DEFCON. I can never remember that. Uh, but that's just not the way relationships work. They're not, uh, I already know it's not going to happen that way. And unfortunately, my justice gene 
which God gave me strongly simply becomes a revenge gene very quickly, uh, a gene that demands that rightness comes to pass at any expense. So I even feel now that uh, by today I have to, to write a letter that I know I'm going to want to hedge with justice, and, and I know that'll be crap. But to see the words that I probably need to say make me want to spit on someone and punch them in the face three times. <laughs> so that is the hard, that's reconciliation in the heart of an angry pastor. I think that's all I have to say. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Uh, Mondo. Hey, Mondo. Hey, Mondo. Mondo. Uh, reconciliation for me right now means a lot of different things. Uh, there's a personal side of it. There's also a side where I've been walking with um, one guy particularly who's trying to reconcile with his wife. Um, it's not really working, um, which uh, encourages him to beat himself up for the things that went wrong or this, that, and the other. Um, and it's very, I, I don't even know what to say a lot of times because uh, when you want to reconcile with someone who does not want to reconcile with you, um, and my friend is continuously pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and continuously getting, you know, the wall thrown at him, you know, bricks mm -hmm. thrown at him, get away from me kind of deal, and it's going on. Well, I've known him probably about a year, and we've gotten pretty close, but this has apparently been going on for two years. Um, so, you know, there, there's that, uh, which has been a very heavy thing for me, just helping him walk through it, try to help him navigate uh, where his heart is. And, you know, and he, he has, he's having a hard time reconciling with himself um, as far as what, you know, uh, his reality, you know, his part in it. Um, and it's, it's just a, a jacked up mess right now, um, trying to help him through that. Now, on my side, personally, uh, reconciliation means something totally different, um, where uh, it's, it's been a theme in my life over the last six years. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, nugget by nugget, piece by piece, um, person to person, situation to situation. Um, but it's all part of the same pie. Um, and I don't know if that'll ever go away. You know, I think reconciliation is just a part of normal life. I mean, I don't think I've ever had a time in my life where I didn't have to reconcile with something. <laughs> um, so, but the cool thing about it is, is that the, the more that I push in and press in uh, to reconcile, um, the more comfortable I feel with the, the act of it, and the easier it's becoming for me to, to initiate um, the, the reconciliation and not just be reactive to it, but try to be proactive. And then the second part of it is, how do you receive the rejection? What if you, you, you're proactive about the reconciliation process with an individual and they reject you? You know, dealing with that side of it. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you think in your head and the initial idea is, you know, I'm going to reconcile with this person or these people or this whatever. And you feel good because it's bringing, you know, you know, correct, correct behavior on your side and all that. It brings, you know, good fruit. 
until you get slapped in the face with a brick of hell no, get away from me. How do you handle that rejection? You know, uh, and so uh, it's it's been a it's been a consistent theme, man. Um, actually, I don't know if that'll ever go away, uh, but I'm learning more and more about it. I'm I'm learning to be more proactive um, and, and less of a prick and less prideful. Because uh, sometimes you just feel like I don't know, that person's an idiot. Uh, but it's not about whether they're an idiot or not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's look at the bigger picture here, and so. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 that in in my life right now. But also trying to navigate a friend, um, and through his process of reconciliation with his wife, and it's just it's really really challenging uh, uh, right now in in that regard with him. So uh, that's what I've got. I'm Mondo. Thanks, Mondo. Thanks, Mondo. <clears throat> my name is Derek. Hey, Derek. Hey, Derek. Um, and I have to I gotta conf- I gotta confess my anxiety about the fact that I was I was in a Samson meeting last night, mm. and. Uh, so, you know, and I've, I can't, you know, and uh, I so appreciate, you know, the time with my brothers there. I'm just not used to doing it uh, in front of a microphone. <laughs> um, we record all of it. It takes a special. Hey, no crosstalk. It takes a special kind of narcissist. But that's right. with it. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, interesting. Something that Mondo said about reconciling with yourself. I think that's probably what hits me today because, you know, like I've had a, you know, I've had a hell of a time the last six months or so. And um, as a result of, you know, I mean, I, my sinning and my being sinned against and, you know, it's just, and uh, just a mess of, of, you know, of that. And, um, you know, I think you have, you have times where you discover that you're not the person you thought, you know, that you were. And um, as a result of seasons like that. And I personally, I mean, I, I think that I've always in a hypothetical way said that I thought that those were, that was a great, that would be a great discovery to make. And those are great moments. And I, I still agree with that. Um, they are great. in as far as they, um, disqualify me from feeling as though I can justify myself. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Um, it takes any illusion of self-built security away from me, mm-hmm. of self-justification away from me. It takes all that away, and I, and actually I wind up living more in reality, um, aligned with what's real, than I had been the moment before, maybe. And that's a good thing. Um, I'm grateful for that. But it does take a certain amount of kind of recon- having to reconcile with this is who I, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is who I've always been. I wasn't, you know, it, when you, when, when you have a moment or a season um, where you have to face things about yourself um, that are ugly or that are, you even surprise yourself, mm-hmm. you know, in, thing, in the things you may do. Um, the, the, the great sanity restoring truth about those moments is that you were no more or less sinful five minutes before that season started Mm -hmm. and you're no more or less loved by god five minutes after Mm -hmm. or six months after Mm -hmm. not in the least yeah because god only loves you for one reason and that's jesus and Mm -hmm. he and and even in glory someday when we're sinning no more god will love us no more no less and for Mm -hmm. no other reason than he loves us right now and Mm -hmm. that's and and that's and you know and that's 
something I could sew on a pillow for all of you guys, and, and I don't know how much point you know there'd be to it, but in a moment like I'm in right now, it it helps. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like a it's a ground it's a ground that you hit on your way down, you yeah. know, and and which I'm grateful for, and um, you know, so, but the, but the, it, that's a but it's hard, you know hard hard moments hard hard things to um to uh to reconcile and uh but ultimately you know if it again if it causes me to be more dependent upon one who has kept the law on my behalf as opposed to my ability to keep it Mm -hmm. then that's good i mean ultimately it is good yeah and uh and and uh and i'm great and i'm really grateful for um the feeling of again being disqualified from mainly I think the thing that I'm walking away with I'm not walking away yet but the thing that I'm experiencing already even in a really hard season is that the way that it it disqualifies you from being a judge mm-hmm. and man I'm grateful for that and I and I think about some of my friends um who have not had to go through uh seasons like some of us might go through mm-hmm. and maybe that I might be in now and um, and how there's part of me that kind of envies the fact that, especially those who are coming, who, who tend to come down really hard um, mm-hmm. on those who are going through hard times. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's it's too tempting not to judge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if they are personally hurt yeah. and things like that. Um, part of me is grateful that they've never had to go through something so hard that has ever disqualified them from feeling like they could judge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, apparently then they've, that means maybe maybe some of those folks have never gone through something that's really exposed them to the degree that they felt as though they could no longer judge other people. But what I can tell you mm-hmm. is that I already am so aware and in quiet moments going back through my mm-hmm. own personal history and remembering times that I have been a judge mm-hmm. to other people in moments yeah. like this yeah. and just repenting in my heart of it like, and just mm-hmm. committing that I would never and could not possibly ever feel as though I could do it again. I would yeah. never, ever respond that way to anyone again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and not because I love their behavior, but because I know mine to be no different, yeah. and I and I I'm totally disqualified from it. And and, and for that, I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful for, for that perspective of knowing, being really um, clear on what my position is to be able to judge anybody. Yeah. yeah. And for that, even in even hard times are so good. You know, are especially good for that. And I'm especially grateful um, for the way it has already enabled me to. Uh, to step out to get off the, the seat of judgment mm-hmm. on on um, on, on with anybody, yeah. and man, that's that's a good thing, and I'm grateful for it. So, um, I, I've exercised my right to get off topic today, a little bit, <laughs> but uh, that's that's part of my right. So, I'm Derek. Thanks, Thanks Derek. Derek. I'm Nate. Hey, Nate. Hey, Nate. Um, yeah, I posted on my Facebook page this week, something that had come my way, uh, a clip from the Craig Ferguson show, it's apparently oh, yeah. a couple years old, yeah. uh, and uh, where he just, it was just so touching the way he, he took himself and the audience and pretty much contemporary culture to task for the way that we just humiliate and abuse and judge uh, celebrities who get uh, deep into trouble. And he told his own story of uh, recovery from alcoholism and just uh, was very appropriate to the troubles that 
Mr. Bieber is having lately, and I, I found myself joining the chorus of, you know, let's, you know, let's beat up on this kid, let's all hate this kid, and and Craig's going, he's a baby, you know, <laughs> wow. But at any rate, uh, on the topic of reconciliation, I, I'm grateful that um, God is committed to reconciliation. Uh, he certainly had no reason to ever want to reconcile with us or with me. Uh, and yet the testimony of the Bible is that um, he was in Christ reconciled the world to himself. That's what it's all about. This whole thing is he wanted to restore a relationship that he didn't break. Uh, I'm grateful that my wife is committed to reconciliation. Um I gave her every right, every reason, every justification to write me off. And for whatever reason, she didn't. And uh, as a result, we now have a relationship that's uh, sweeter than even anything we had back in the heady, semi-insane days of early infatuation. Uh, because now we're n no longer under those illusions. She's no she knows what she's getting. And um, and so reconciliation is beautiful and I'm grateful that my wife is committed to it which and so I don't know why I myself am so ambivalent about reconciliation I'm not all that committed to it frankly um, there's a part of me that would rather just uh, tell people with whom the people who disagree with me or people who are critical of me or people who have failed me uh, if it's going to be a lot of trouble to patch it back together I'd rather not go to the trouble thank you very much I got other fish to fry uh, I'd rather walk away and I'm very good at it it's amazing to me how good I am at walking away from people um, it's it's disturbing to me that I'm that good at walking away um, and I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's, uh, I, I don't want to go through the work of reconciliation, because reconciliation, I want to go through the work if it benefits me. I was willing to do the work of recovery um, to say I was wrong, I'm sorry, I love you in a thousand ways. Uh, it, if, if it meant that I could possibly get a relationship back with my wife. And as much work as I did, she did far more work than I, because she was, she was on the forgiving end. I was willing to do that, because it was a payoff for me. Uh, but in other relationships, I just I see uh, maybe it's just I see the work, and I and I don't want to do the work. Uh, part of it, I think, is um, the judge in me dies hard. It amazes. I've got this inner judge that's got nine lives. I am grateful for those times of humility where I have this head-snapping, bone-crushing collision with my own depravity and I see how utterly dependent upon grace I am, how completely broken I am, you know, how love is such a gift. And in those moments, I'm able to be very accepting and forgiving of other people. But i got a short memory. Uh, and there's this satisfaction that comes with knowing that you've got it on somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, to know that I'm justified in walking away 
I'd hate to give that up to walk back. Uh, and also, I do think for me, there's also there's there's um, a fear of um, of being injured. You know, it's a self-protective thing too. I don't like conflict. Anyway, I'm not a fighter. Uh, at least I'm not a clean fighter. If I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight dirty, and I'll do it with a smile on my face, and you'll have no idea, right? Um, so I don't like conflict and reconciliation. To walk back into a conflict uh, with the goal of somehow putting back together a relationship that has been painful. Uh, and in so doing, to run the risk of more pain or another rejection, to have that proverbial brick come in my direction again. Uh, that seems like a hell of a lot of trouble. I'd rather not do it. Um, and yet, uh, because I am a restored son of the Sovereign Lord, because the Spirit of Christ actually does live within me, because there's this new heart, there's this new desire, I am at least ambivalent on the topic. It's not like I'm opposed to reconciliation. I just am very ambivalent about it. And I, and I want to do it and I don't want to do it. Um, and I'm frankly, I'm a little upset that this came up as the topic. Uh, do we need to reconcile? Yeah, because it's forcing me to face an issue that I would rather ignore. That's me. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Nate. All right, well, we'll be back in a minute with the guy who's going to, who sang this song.
once again, you've been listening to artist Derek Webb. Those sweet, sweet sounds. <laughs> oh, that's just that's wrong. That's a fantastic it's pregnant pause. Absolutely wow. wrong. Wow. Yeah. Uh, is, it, is it causing you to stumble, Nate? Am I causing you to stumble right now? Because <laughs> sometimes I do that to dudes. Yeah. No different than every other week. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Derek, thank you so much for coming in yeah, and on the pleasure. podcast. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, I'll tell you what, just for those few of our listeners who don't know who you are, <laughs> Let's 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 thumbnail let's thumbnail your your life story real quick and sure. then and then uh, and then how you got in the music business and where that's gone over the course of already what twenty years yes. doing this thing yeah that's wow. amazing believe that yeah yeah um, I grew up playing music I mean it's all it's the only thing I'm good at uh-huh. from from six five six years old I started playing music I, mean, really? I started really young <laughs> uh-huh. yeah guitar and piano whatever any instrument I get my hands on. My mom is a really brilliant musician, so she kind of taught me, and from really early. Where did you grow up? And Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, okay. Uh huh. Born in Memphis and was there till I was a teenager. All right. And so that was just, and I was terrible at everything else, just awful at school, awful at social activity, awful at sports, awful at everything. I was terrible. And so music, though, was the one thing from really early I could always do. Mm-hmm. Came really easy to me, and the one thing that came easy and. So I always did it, and um, and I felt like I always now, was knew. That, was that in a church? Was that in a churchy context, or no, just your? No, I mean, so I grew up in the South, so of course I, you know, went to church, um, but I didn't, um, you know, I went to a, a Methodist church all growing up, and it was really more of a high church situation. So I didn't even really, even squinting my eyes at it, I couldn't really even see how what I was doing or interested in would in any way translate to what the musical situation in that, mm-hmm. you know, at yeah. church. So I didn't even have a, there wasn't even a temptation. And, you know, and this was in the, this was in the, you know, the, the early eighties, you know, there right. like, so there, there was no industry for it. There was no, like there, there wasn't, um, I wouldn't have imagined there being some place for me to take yeah. and any of that. And then you found out that playing with the organ meant something totally different than they were <laughs> offering <laughs> that, at church. Well, I, so I don't want to skip like, ahead, oh. but yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm out. Still, I'm not even quite to my teenage years. He was in his 30s. But, uh, that's right. That's right. It gave me a chance to get there. But uh, so anyway, I um, and and so I but I so I always did that and 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 wound up barely got out of high school. Um, was in bands all growing up um, from really early and in bands and and then um, right out of high school I I uh, we, I had a mutual friend with a guy who with whom I started this band Cadman's Call so that mm-hmm. was 1992 yeah. and um, guy I went to high school with went to college with this guy Cliff Young and so I, he introduced me to Cliff and um, and we started Cadman's in '92 and uh, the half-hearted semester. I spent at Houston Community College. I was living in Houston by this point, mm-hmm. and the half semester I spent there, I I wholeheartedly quit and uh, <laughs> to go and do this. Yeah, yeah. I didn't tell my parents until the end of that whole school year. Oh wow! But I, ah, but uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I waited until I knew they'd forgive me. Yeah. But uh, but anyhow, I um, and so we wound up starting starting the, the band, and we were and I was living in Texas at the time, so we um spent some years touring around all of our friends were in college and and we weren't um so we 
but we started uh, writing music and, um, you know, nobody, we weren't really advertising our, our spirituality in the music at the time, but, but what we were doing was very much a reaction to being young, being post high school age believers Mm -hmm. and feeling like we just got dropped into the abyss in terms of any kind of cultural engagement. Like all this music that was being made that we were aware of was either for youth groups yeah, or it was for like a contemporary adults. Right, right, right. And there was nothing in between. For right. like people trying to be discerning and thoughtful and being in that age where everything's a watershed decision and you're that kind of that college age where yeah. you're like figuring yourself out. Yeah. There was no music to yeah. help us figure yeah. ourselves yeah. out. Right, right, right. So we kind of sought to do some of that and to write that kind of music and we didn't um, but even then, even then, we weren't interested in like uh, marketing it in some kind of spiritual way. But we did that for three or four years, put out a couple of independent records. We're touring all over Texas and starting to get into Oklahoma, North Carolina, and then Georgia and kind of tour our way around. And all of this pre-internet. Like it was yeah. really hard back then. But um, but we did, and we actually had a fair amount of success. And we, we wound up doing that full-time and touring in buses. And, you know, we sold a bunch of records as an independent band and, um, and then got – um, into a situation that was a really good situation for us with a record label here in Nashville and signed our first record deal with Warner Brothers. And then, mm-hmm. and so that, that whole story is just so, you know, that, so that was 10 years I spent in that band, um, about six of those on major labels. And, yeah. and we, you know, and, and we wound up getting, kind of getting pulled into what you, what's, what's, what's widely known as Christian, I'm doing air quotes, Christian music <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. scene. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I've said this so many times, and I'm saying it again for the virtue of your listeners, in case any of them have not heard it, that, um, the, and they can follow up with you, all of you next week about it, since I'll be gone. But, uh, <laughs> that the word what, the word Christian, mm-hmm. when applied to anything other than a human being, mm-hmm. is a marketing term. Yeah, it's all that it is, and it cannot be more than that. It cannot mean more than that. Um, and, and I, I only say that because I've spent some years in what's called the Christian music world, and yeah, yeah, yeah. which is yeah. it's uh, yeah. there's nothing right, true, good, or beautiful about it. Just because somebody rubber stamped it as such, it's yeah. just music like anything else. I'm just as likely to lie to you as anybody else, or yes. lead you accidentally as anybody else. Yes. Just because I just because I'm been somehow stamped with the word Christian uh, on my work does not mean that it's right, true, good, or beautiful. Um, so don't believe me or trust me. And uh, but that said, um, those were ten, those were ten good years, and we had a moderate amount of success there. And then um, uh, I started writing songs that were um, a little more perilous for for my reputation. Yeah. Um, just because you spend ten years in an industry like that, and you see things, mm-hmm. you observe things, and you realize that there are things that nobody kind of addresses, things that nobody's really talking about. Yeah. But the reason is because uh, right. it, it would be a biting of the hand that's feeding you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Sure. Nobody does it. Oh, and uh, pause there. Yes. What was the first song that you are talking about? Yeah. Perilous. What What comes to your mind that you knew this is going to really? Oh, I know uh, it. Oh, I know it for a fact. Um, it was a song called "Wedding Dress," and it was a song on my oh, yeah. first record. Mm-hmm. Um, and which and, I wrote. And in how, the... When you were writing it, did you think this is bad? This is going to be bad. Um, I, bad in a certain sense. I mean, I felt it was good. It was good. It would not because, be well received. But, but it would not be well received. Yeah. I wrote it after being at a CBA conference in Atlanta, Christian oh. Booksellers Convention, which we had to do all the time. You go oh. there to promote yeah. your wares. Yeah, right. You know. Mm-hmm. And um, and I went there with Cademans, and we were we had a new record coming out, so we had to go promote it, and we were set up to play just after. A, uh, a guy who had written a really, really hugely popular book at that moment, mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Wilkinson, who wrote The Prayer of Jabez. Mm-hmm. And I knew Bruce to be a great Bible teacher. He had mm-hmm. then walked through the Bible and all this great stuff. 
and I'd heard about this book, the Fred mm-hmm. Jabez, and I and I'd heard a lot of things about it. I knew it had already sold five or ten million at that point, mm-hmm. and we were going to play after he spoke at this huge thing where in this ballroom for several thousand people uh, assembled. There were all the people who stocked, made all the decisions about everything that's carried in all the Christian bookstores, yeah. independent and and major yeah. all across the country. And I was really anxious to hear him speak because I've got a lot of friends who have made the great mistake of becoming popular and then having everybody uh, judge them and critique them yeah. and go crazy and abandon them. And so I didn't want to do that. Right. So I was really anxious to hear him speak. And without getting into all the details, I was really disheartened hearing what he said yeah. um, and hearing the way that he extrapolated this very obscure Old Testament verse. Yeah. Not We don't know what Jabez asked for. We don't know how God responded. We yeah. don't know that he prayed it more than one time. We don't yeah. know. Yeah. There's no formula laid out there. And yet the book is very much a formula that seems to not care what your position is to Jesus, mm-hmm. if you pray it and you do it for these amount of days, it's so it's the so-called prayer that God cannot answer, uh, can't can't, uh, can't refuse. He can't refuse. He has yeah. to answer it. Yeah. Um, and he told Sir after story about you know, but, and at the end he he had kind of somewhat of an altar call saying if you want me to pray for you that you will pray the prayer every day for thirty days. If you do it, then God's going to expand the size of your stores and the the revenue you're making in your retail stores, and you're going to see radio spots coming to support your stores, and this is all going to happen. Yeah. Um, and it's my, you know, my and, tents and, will be enlarged. And yeah, I mean, no, but it, that is, I mean, that's, yeah. that, those are the promises on God's behalf that yeah. were being oh. set forth that night, and and kind of calling people to the front. And I thought, well, finally, justice. No one will come up because everyone, oh. everyone's going to see that. You know, that yeah. everyone realizes that this is just a, um, and 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 the whole place got up and just weeping came up to the front like the yeah. Grand Crusade to have him pray for them that they would pray the prayer and have their their revenue doubled and their stores yeah. expanded and their. Yeah. And, and I was just so frustrated seeing it, yeah. um, just for me. But I luckily went quickly to where do I do this? Uh-huh. Like where do I believe this? Where where do I? I might this might not be my particular brand of scotch, but what like what's what are the ways that I live yeah. exactly like this? Yeah. Huh. And what and where are the ways that I don't see myself as the adulterous wife um, that that Jesus basically commits himself into a bad marriage with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as you said, you know, kind of did nothing to break a relationship with and yet comes and reconciles himself to me yeah. in every way. How do I not know myself deeply enough, my sin deeply enough to not realize that I do exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. subversively because I do it in my own heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do it before before God. Um, yeah. And no, um, so that night in, in in the hotel in Atlanta, I went and wrote this song, Wedding Dress, that was – Kind of my feelings about both both what I had heard, my initial judgment, and then my own kind of eventual confession of how I do exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And I knew that that song. I didn't know that it had just single-handedly launched my solo career, but I, um, I knew that there was something different about that yeah. song in that moment. And I thought it was a Cadence Call song, you know. Mm-hmm. But the band didn't want me to play it, yeah. you know, at their show at our shows. But they, but they wanted me to play it, just not at their shows. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, th- this was not something that they felt as though they wanted their reputation staked on. Right. Um, and so it was kind of a very amicable thing. They said, like, we want you – and I, so I started to write more songs along those lines because that unlocked a whole new thing for me. Yeah. And I realized, wow, there's a lot of ground here to cover that I think is really important. The band was very protective of what we had built in those 10 years, which I had totally agreed with. And so they knew that I, I should be playing the songs. They knew that that wasn't the place for it, so we all talked about me – needing to go and do something on my own, mm-hmm. um, which they were very much in support of. Mm-hmm. 
they knew that I couldn't do both. Yeah, yeah. And so it was. It felt less like a split than it felt like a church plant. You know, yeah, they, yeah. they kind of <laughs> sent me out to do it. And um, so I made my first record. I didn't know I'd, if I'd ever make a second. Yeah. And you know, eleven years later, I've made I don't know eight records. And yeah. you know that. So that was that kind of set the trajectory of my my whole solo career. And I've yeah. kind of wound up making a living at that. So mm-hmm. something that I noticed, I actually was a, I mean, a Caveman Call fan. I guess during those the independent days. Something. <clears throat> um, All right, hold on. Everybody there, something froze from my end. What just happened? I don't know. Okay. Mondo, you'll have to edit. I started to talk, then you did. Oh. Um, so I'll just pick right up. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually remember seeing you guys at, I think it turned into the Gibson Cafe at some point, back when all you did in downtown Nashville was buy drugs and get stabbed. Um, I remember <laughs> right. seeing you guys, um, and, and in a lot of ways – the music Caveman's Call made and the the music you make on your own um, has been kind of a soundtrack to kind of my faith walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I've heard in Caveman's Call and then in, in your solo stuff, um, both, it, for me, it's been both empowering and convicting. Mm-hmm. And, and I've heard, I mean, anger at the church. Um, or frustration, anger may not be the right word. Um, what's, I guess, what's kept you from, like, I guess like I did for a few years, just saying, you know what, screw it. Mm-hmm. I just quit. And I don't mean music. I mean church. I mean, yeah. like what, because you have a passion for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen you at a few different things and, and, and can hear in your music. Mm-hmm. What's that been like for you? What What kept you? from just throwing your hands up and walking away. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have, I'm grateful to, to have had some mentors and some guys who early on, um, you know, when Cademans was first getting started, really early, who made it their business, glimpsing the platform that we were going to have, they really stepped in to teach us and to, I mean, like I said, I barely got out of high school. Yeah. I didn't think about really going to college. I'm not really wired that way. Um, but there, but, but there were some. So I'm kind of a, I'm a closet intellectual, you know. I'm kind of a rogue <laughs> intellectual. And um, but there were some, there were some guys who were older than we were and who um, were really, really smart and guys who were in seminary, who were teaching seminary, who all during those early years in Caymans would kind of give us book list of what the beginning of each semester and kind of make us read them all. Um, We were doing in stores in various cities all over the country where after shows we would go to bookstores and sign records and, and they kind of hang out with fans and, and the store owners would always tell us we could pick out a book or a record to take for free because we would come by the store. And I remember several times taking advantage of that and walking up with like a big hardback Wayne Grudem systematic theology (laughs) on the And they thought I was going to grab like a $10 audio adrenaline record and I was grabbing a $65 textbook. (laughs) Hey, you said anything in the store? (laughs) And um, so I built up quite a, you know, so so we basically did a lot, we spent a lot of time, you know, there were seven of of us in that band living in tight quarters. We talked a lot, we worked a lot about our faith out and a lot about our theological belief out early in those years. All that to say... I was grateful going into my solo years, musically, having a real found a theological foundation yeah. for um, the institution of the church, mm-hmm. how it was founded, what its purpose was, yeah. and so it really helped for me to remove a lot of the temptation to say, um, 
you know what, I, I, I think I can just go and do this. I think I can just me, I can take my Bible and go and, and you know, hike up to the, the top of the cliff and just kind of have church up there. Right. I mean, temp, tempted as I have been to, to say that and to do that, and as tempted as I will be in the future to do that, um, I just don't, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where there's any version of church that does not, unfortunately, involve bounding me to, binding me to, other believers with whom I have nothing in common mm-hmm. right. other than my sin right. hmm. and my need for Jesus yeah. and he as our healer. I don't have anything in common with those people other than him, other than my need and his meeting of it. Right. And no wonder we bicker and fight constantly. Mm-hmm. We don't have anything in common but our sin. It's like an right. AA meeting. I mean, if church is not, <laughs> if church isn't run like an AA meeting, yeah, right. then we're not doing it right. If we don't come in and all of us come in and say the only reason that we are here is because we are sick and we need healing. I mean, we need to be restored to each other and to ourselves and be integrated again. Yeah. Um, and even the guy in front get up and say, I like you and in desperate need of Jesus. Come yeah. with me. And let's all go get healed. Yeah. And yeah. let's celebrate that healing. If that's not what we're doing, then I don't – then, you know, if church looks less – looks more like an Amway convention than an AA meeting, we're not doing it right, period. Right. And, um, but here's – You know, so, here's so a, yeah. Here's a hard gospel piece in there. Uh, when I was doing a college service with Ben Barzi for seven years, he uh, he's like your biggest fan, though he's he is small of stature, big of uh, fandom. Uh, and so he would use, he would be like, we're going to do, I'm telling the worship team to do wedding dress as a worship song. So wow. I mean, that's how I was introduced to a lot of your music as like worship songs. Uh, when he tried to do dance, the dance on that, you like your grandma, that did not work at all for a worship song. <laughs> um, but he's always like, let's do this one. I'm like, whatever. But we did wedding dress for a couple of years, often. And I would hear this song, and, and you'd have to think, I mean, you have to think about it. So compliment to you, it just doesn't hit you. I thought, oh, this is such a gospelicious song. This is gospeliciousness. But then I'd watch the college students. And they would be repenting. I'm sorry, Jesus. I do put you on like a wedding dress. I am a whore. I'm like, oh, man. That's like the anti-gospel response. Mm-hmm. That's the climbing back into the crap. Mm-hmm. That's going back to the pigsty. And so it was, it was good to see that, to understand how flipped the gospel had become for these young people that needed the shame of being a whore and would even disdain the wedding dress. And and say I'm cheating you by running down the aisle. When I'm pretty sure, and correct me if you're if I'm wrong, that's the best part of the song yeah. is running down the aisle. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's it, that's a hard culture to say these things to yeah. when they're so confused. Yeah, you know, pop music is not the best place for nuanced statements, unfortunately. But it's all I've got, and uh, <laughs> so all I can do. No wonder I have to keep on making records because. Uh, you know, and all my and, and there's no there, and my records have all pretty much been about all the same stuff because you just have to keep saying it different a hundred different ways in hopes that anyone at any point, um, you know, gets it or understands it or or but but you know but ultimately you know to answer that question like I I just don't believe there's a song on my first record called the church and the the chorus of which is says um, uh, from Jesus' perspective you cannot care for me. With no regard for her, if you love me, you'll love the church, mm-hmm. and um, and that's what he says to me. And so tempting as it may be, to hard as it is to continue showing up week after week, especially if you 
feel as though you're walking into, you know, the lamb's den, so to speak. Like you're actually walking in to the courts of the righteous to be judged, which is a lot of what church feels like a lot of time, yeah. the time depending on what season of life you're in. Yeah. There is no version of Christianity um, that says it's just you and Jesus and you can just go be all by yourselves. Yeah. I wish there was. For a guy like me, boy, that would be such a relief. But it's just not. It's, yeah. And um, and so that's just the guardrail that I hit. You know, like yeah. that theological guardrail is there and I hit it and I, and I sort of back to the middle. But I hit it constantly if yeah. it's any comfort to you. Yeah. Um, so why did you pick up on uh, Stockholm Syndrome? You seem to pick up some of the uh, sexual issues of the church and culture. What what inspired you towards that direction? Because mm-hmm. you knew you were walking into a poop storm on that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just comes with the territory. I mean, it's it's just this is what I you know I'm I, I've I've always considered my role equal part singer songwriter and agitator. I'm just mm-hmm. I'm good at it, and mm-hmm. it's how I'm wired. And I I finally got to a point some years ago, maybe six seven years ago, where I decided you have a lot of people when you're wired a particular way when you're when you're complicated in church circles, you have a lot of people who will tell you that all the ways that God would wish to change you and make you into a different kind of and renew your mind is what they'll say. And, and, I, and I think that's true. I don't think that's a true use of it. I think that is true. God does want to renew our minds. But I finally kind of was encouraged to the point to where I didn't, I no longer felt like God wanted to rewire me so much as he wanted to, he wired me the way I am for a particular reason. Yeah. And, and I'm, I have a rebellious spirit about me. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. I think I think the 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 use the adult use of my gifts has turned out to be to try to discern the right things to rebel against. Because mm-hmm. there are right things to rebel against and say no, this is not right, and no, it shouldn't be this way. Um, and so that comes the territory for me. And I actually kind of, if anything, ironically, it's kind of expected of me at this point. Um, you know, like people are always looking to see what I'm pissed off about next, and uh, which is unfortunate because I, I mean, but anyway. So the so Stockholm syndrome, you know, is a re, is a record that gets into issues of sexuality and race, but it's really eclipsed by the issues of sexuality because that that's such a hot topic, and it definitely even was five years ago when I wrote that record. And um, the reason. So my work that I do as an artist is fully integrated in with my normal life. And that's mm-hmm. not always been true. When I was in Cademan's, they were segmented, and it wasn't a super healthy thing for me. Right. Now they're really integrated in a way that the thing that I find myself worked up about, excited about, angry about, elated about, sitting on my porch talking to my friends about, whatever I can't stop thinking about, those are the things inevitably I will make records about. If I took you back to the year before any record I have ever made and told you what is what was happening with me, with my friends, with, in my community, what I was thinking about, reading about, couldn't get away from, it just was coming at me constantly, you would be able to absolutely say, oh, that must have been the record the year before you made this record because that's all over that record. And you'd be right. I mean, it's easy to predict. So the year before I, I wrote Stockholm, I was seeing... And having to deal very personally with um, the church fumbling with particular issues, in my opinion, and fumbling with um, loving um, com- more, the more complex uh, people in culture, and specifically the homosexual community, the gay community, um, man, the church has fumbled with that. And, uh, and I have so many friends, really close friends, some of my, my closest friends in my life ever, um, some of my family, who have been at the business end of the church's the church's judgment on this issue, um, I just think it's been done so in a, such a cavalier 
way, and it, and it really troubles me. I think the church asks and then seeks to answer all the wrong questions about issues like this publicly. And I found myself not wanting to take sides on this, but broadly I felt if I have to stand somewhere, where would Jesus stand? He would stand on the side of those, of the, of, of those who were um, sick and those who were being persecuted and those who were sinful and those who were being judged and those who were being disenfranchised and those who were complicated. That's where he'd be standing. And, and he would be standing in front of them um, mm-hmm. and as a barrier between them and those who would seek to judge them and mm-hmm. throw stones at them. Um, and that's a good model for us. And so I wanted – it felt time for me personally. I could no longer make excuses for um, characters in the church – or associated with the church, the institution of the church, I could no longer apologize and try to make excuses for how 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 those people would speak and behave to my friends to whom they were speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I could just no longer do it, and so I felt like it was finally time for me, even just for my my loved ones and my friends, to to say something about it because it was becoming such a hot issue for me and them. And so I needed to st- stand. And so if I'm going to stand, I'm going to stand with my friends who are being persecuted and broken and judged. Yeah. Um, and so that, so that's how it wound up. And, um, wow. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's a whole other, there's several other hours of conversation about what Mm. happened the following year as a result, but that's how I got, I got there because I couldn't not go there because of the, how it was affecting my friends and my family. Um, so I I tried to imagine where would Jesus stand and it would be with them. Yeah. I would guess you could speak to, another topic that's coming up a lot and it must have gotten worse after Stockholm we are hearing so many celebrities speaking out against being bullied by people online since everybody Mm -hmm. gets to be a commentator Mm -hmm. on art and culture Mm -hmm. and uh, so many celebrities are now saying you know what why is this appropriate that you're just beating the crap out of me well I have always enjoyed the ridiculously uh, funny things that are written about you after. Don't think that after I heard that album from, of course, the same guy, uh, I didn't go see what the church was saying about that album you. And I have to ask, how does that feel to you, or do you just avoid it altogether? Um, that's some harsh stuff. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I am... I am wired in a particular way. I'm equipped for the role that I've been given. Mm. Um, I'm equipped for it. And so for a lot of people, I think it would be really hard, um, I, probably. Um, I don't have that part of my personality that cares about pleasing people. And I know that, that I have other problems, but I don't have that. <laughs> I have other problems that are worse, probably. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they are, but I don't have that. And I know a lot of my friends have that, and so they'll be really concerned on my behalf, or have been over the years, really concerned on my behalf. Like, how are you? Are you okay? Are you doing? And um, like, I've had many situations where I'll be playing shows and and play particular songs, and uh, during or after which, huge um, factions of the crowd will get up and leave, and or I've been heckled, or people will stand up and call out to me, and I'll have to have a conversation with people in front of. That's it happens all the time, and honestly, um, if it wasn't happening. I would probably wonder if I was really doing my job because I just want people to listen. I just want people to be engaged, and I don't care what the response is. I certainly am not trying to get people to agree with me. Um, We're diverse members of one body. Every single word in that phrase is important. 
I wouldn't. I think it'd be arguably sinful if all of us were coming to the same conclusions about issues like this, mm-hmm. um, about how to build the kingdom. Sometimes you're all so far on the other side of the kingdom that you're all building, you can't even see those people over there, understand what part of it they're building and why it has to be that way. We have to have grace, you know, for each other that to, to trust that ultimately um, there is space for us all to be building one kingdom and to be, not really understand how it all, how those all those pieces of the kingdom fit together as one place, and they do. Um, but for me, like I'll have people come up, promoters after shows come up and just be so apologetic. Oh, I'm so sorry this happened, and these people left, and these people, it was this big disruption in the show, and I'm oh, I'm so embarrassed. And I'll tell them like, man, I was, I'm thrilled. Like I did my job. I came here to do a job, and I did it. And and if people had just sat, if people had had that reaction and just sat there through it, um, I would have been more discouraged than the fact that they reacted. People reacted, and that's what I want. I don't, I don't want them to agree with me. Um, what would, co- what you know, what would come of that if we were one homogenous group of people all thinking the same way, believing the same things? Um, that would be arguably more sinful. So I'm always pleased when I when I see. I don't, I don't do it for that reason. I don't want. I'm not looking. I mean, I'm, I'm, I turned 40 this year. I'm not. You know, when I was a younger man, I might have enjoyed the controversy more. I, um, I don't do it for that reason. I'm not. I'm not. I don't do it to be provocative. I do it because I think it needs doing, um, and I'm equipped to do it. Um, but luckily, it just doesn't really bother me all that much. If anything, it kind of fuels me um, to, mm. to, just to know that people are paying attention and they're listening and that they reacted. Good. That's fine. If you don't agree with me, that's fantastic. Yeah. I don't have any problem with that as long as you're thinking and as long as, you know, because um, that's more often the enemy is just complacency. We just sit around using the same language for so long, not realizing the, the, the stark inconsistencies in our language, we're, we're talking like this, and yet we, and yet we, we treat people like this. And um, I'm just, I just like to disrupt. I just like to disrupt it. And uh, <laughs> if after the disruption, you come back to the exact same conclusion you had before, fantastic. I, 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 I'm, so how, I'm how did you, how did you end up in a Samson meeting where there was no pushback and just learning to listen and speak honestly? Uh, that, you know, you just described a very different paradigm from mm-hmm. your heart. Well, so I think it's, a, you know, again, the, the, my, in my professional life, um, I have learned to embrace this. I've learned to accept it. I've learned to be the, you know, to, to bring, to use my powers for good, so to speak, you know, to bring my wiring to bear on things that I feel like need disruption. Um, I don't remember who once said, but, you know, sometimes the, the job is to comfort the afflicted. Sometimes it's to afflict the comfortable. And I've tried to figure out where I stand in that equation, and I'll fall on, on different sides of it at different times. In my personal life, it's a whole other ballgame. Um, I don't. Um, I'm not. I don't want to walk into my personal relationships like a bull in a china shop any more than I would wish for people to do that with me. Um, and how I wound up in a Samson meeting was probably how anyone winds up in any meeting like that. It was mm-hmm. out of just sheer desperation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and honestly, I was just so grateful to find a place to land. Yeah. Um, so, and for me, and especially to your point, given my personality and given the way I've typically navigated my life, um, it, that for me has been a significant disruption. For the, for the disruptor, that has been such a good disruption mm-hmm. um, to, go, to go into a place to not be able to respond because mm-hmm. I'm a fixer yeah. and also to be able to, 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 to speak um, and like to have a, a place, a, you know, because I'm also, I wind up as a result because I'm navigating 
you know, kind of treacherous waters sometimes when you're dealing with really nuanced and complex subject matter, when you're doing interviews, when you're, di- when you're doing press, you, you find yourself having to be really calculated about how you speak and what you say in order to stay in the role you're in. You have to be really, there's a lot of, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very calculated communicator mm-hmm. when I'm, and, in, and in, a, in, in a situation like Samson, it's the call is to is to the opposite. Yeah, is to walk in and not be calculated yeah. and not be careful. Yeah, but to just kind of open your mouth. Most weeks when I'm at Samson, I open my mouth and begin. I say, "Hi, I'm Derek." Before I even exactly know what I'm what yeah. I'm about to say. Yeah, and I and never before had I had a um, a venue where I could do that. Yeah. Um, I'm the kind of person who who likes very much to know exactly what I'm going to say. Yeah. and be three chess moves ahead of any response so that I'm ready with a response. Yeah, yeah. So that I can carefully navigate. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm dealing in complicated subject matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In Samson's the opposite, and maybe it was the first time in my life that I had a place like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that I could go, and that I could take that. Yeah. And so I've, man, I've been so grateful for it. One of the things I really love about you, Derek, is that you live out loud. I think that that is. You know, the biblical model, it's what we have to learn to do, uh, is, is learn to live out loud. It comes through your music, and you have a passion now for helping other people kind of live out loud, build, uh, tell the truth, find an audience, find their tribe. Uh, you're actually taking a year off from touring and from music to, to work on this business. Tell us a little about the business, will you? Um, so five years ago, well, so seven years ago, I was at a point in my career I put up my third record and I have a pretty concentrated and very specific tribe of folks mm-hmm. who have supported me over the years. A lot of them came from Cademan's with me and, and so that has enabled me very much to have the career I've had and take the chances I've, I've taken because I knew I had the support of these people. Yeah. And so I've made my living, you know, being being carried around on the backs of these folks and yeah. this, this tribe of, of folks. And um, so I put a record out, it was my third record, and... Typically, I don't have a ton of ambition for my records. We, we, m- the label and I, we budget them to break even with my tribe buying them. Yeah. And and it was business as usual. The record had been out for six months. It was a record called Mockingbird. Record had been out for six months. The tribe had bought it. Um, the marketing money was was gone. Yeah. And and that that's where you start talking about what do we do next? What's the next record? Yeah. Only I had just a very a very specific ambition for this one particular record because I thought you know I think there's a lot of people who would resonate with this album who I know haven't heard it. Is there any way we could spend a little more time promoting it? The label said, well, we just don't have any more money to do that. Yeah. So unless you can come up with some way to promote the record that doesn't cost us money, then unfortunately we have to move on. And I think they meant that in a rhetorically. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I immediately started to, you know, the way you survive in kind of the modern music space is to learn how to apply your creativity beyond just the recording and, and writing yeah, of your music, yeah. but also to distributing and the marketing of your music. You, know, yeah. you have to learn how to apply it all the way around. Sure. Um, or else you're just not owed a career, unfortunately. And um, so um, I started to think about that. And what we came up with, my manager and I came up with this idea. Why don't we go and we pitched this to Sony, which was the parent label at the time, asking them if they would let us give away the record for free digitally mm-hmm. for three months for email and zip code. So we're going to gather up data right. um, for hopefully a ton of new fans, fans of people who, would not, who, who don't either have not heard of it or wouldn't buy it. Right. You wouldn't take the chance, wouldn't take the gamble. Let's lower the stakes all the way right. yeah. and give them a reason to engage with it and listen to it and see if we can find a bunch of new fans. We get their email. We, know, we can follow up with them online. We get their zip code. We know where they are. We can tour. Yeah. Um, data is valuable. So um, this was before Radiohead or Nine Inch Nails yeah. or, 
or Prince or anybody had given away free music. It was really ludicrous to do it mm-hmm. at the time, seven years ago. Um, they, they, they somehow agreed. Um, we did it, and in three months, we, I started with about 5,000 people on my email list that I built. I asked some of my friends to talk about who had bigger tribes than I did at the time. Mm-hmm. And in three months' time, we gave away 85,000 records. Wow. Which for me is a lot of records. Yeah. And, that's, and I knew that that was pretty much all new fans because that's so many more downloads than, than I had ever sold of records. Right, right. So immediately I was thinking, where are these? Who are and where are these people? Yeah. Um, we knew the data was valuable, but could we make it make money? Yeah. You know, because, I mean, the point of giving it away for free was to follow it up with, a pay, with some pay transaction. You know, it's not right, just right. a... You know, I mean, this is what I do for, for my living. So I need right. to, I, you know, but, um, and so we immediately, I wanted to look at the data. Um, what could we learn? Immediately we, we determined, looking at the zip codes, of the five cities where I'd given away the most records, Yeah. two of them I had never toured in as a solo artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there, I thought, well, here's a huge opportunity. I've never toured in these cities, but there's, I've got a ton of fans there. Yeah. And, I'm, and in the meantime, I'm touring in cities and playing for 10 people. Yeah. Um, you know, why am, I, why am I touring in those cities and why am I not touring in these? Yeah. Well, the data was what was telling us. Um, New York and L.A. were the two cities. I'm thinking these are coastal cities. They're really complicated. They're really uh, challenging markets, you know, competitive mm-hmm. markets. I'm a folk singer. I'm a niche, 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 niche folk singer. Why would I go to these markets? To, you know, they're way yeah. too competitive for me. But the data doesn't lie. So we, I went to my booking and I said, book me any show in any venue for any pay in Los Angeles. Yeah. And they got me a Wednesday night for zero dollars, but ninety yeah. percent of the door. Right. Um, to play at the Knitting Factory in Hollywood Boulevard. Oh. So I took it, um, booked up the show. Two weeks before the show. We sent an email only to the people on this list. I think it was about 2,200 people within 15 miles of that venue wow. that downloaded my record. And we knew that because we had got zip codes. Yeah. So 2,200 people within 15 miles of that venue. We, had, yeah. we, you know, we emailed them and said, hey, we hope you love the record. Play, uh, come into your backyard. Come to play a show. Come out. 15 yeah. bucks the door, whatever it was. Two days before the show, we hit them again. Yeah. You know, just a reminder, come on out to the show. We hope you're loving the record. Yeah. We didn't know what was going to happen. So we sh- I showed up night of the show. Me and my buddy are walking up mm-hmm. um, to the venue. Um, now, now, the knitting, fact, knitting factory has three rooms. The smallest room that I was in held, held about 100 people yeah. up to the big room, which is thousands. Yeah. And there, we walked up, and there was a line down Hollywood Boulevard, and we were thinking, oh, my gosh, I wonder who's playing the big room tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah. we could stick around and see the show. Maybe it's somebody great, somebody yeah. huge. Um, <clears throat> we got up there, and it turned out they were all there for my show. Wow. And we, we sold the room out, mm-hmm. and then we turned away twice the capacity of the room. Wow. You know, we filled it up at 100. We turned away 200. Right. Um, I played the show. I went outside and played a second show for twice the people wow. on the sidewalk yeah. who didn't get in. The venue were looking at me like, who the hell are you? Yeah, yeah. And I'm basically saying, I'm nobody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's why this is important, what just happened here tonight. This is yeah. important. Yeah, yeah. Um, they booked me that, that same night to come back six months later to play their next bigger room. I came back and we turned away the capacity of the room again the next bigger room six months later. Wow. The wow. same thing happened in New York at the bitter end. Exactly hmm. the same thing. So all of a sudden, it changes my career forever. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, I, can, I know where my fans are. I can make the data. I'm, I, I actually, as a result, I make more money giving the records away for free than mm. I made selling the records the old way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it totally changed my career, changed my whole paradigm of how I looked at the business. Um, and immediately thought, I have so many friends in Nashville, in this town, who I know would be more than willing to give away some music for free in exchange for information with which they could make a living. Yeah. I yeah. know they would, yeah. but I don't think they'll think to do it. I don't think they could afford to do it because at yeah. the time it was really expensive. So we tried to get VC money. We tried to, you know, we wanted to yeah, bring, yeah. bring this thing to market. Yeah. Um, 
and we just couldn't do it. Nobody, it, it wasn't like nobody could see the profit in it. Yeah. It took us two years. We bootstrapped it. Me and four other guys partnered together, put our own cash in to build it. We launched Noise Trade five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of nobody ran it for a while. It just we just put it up there, and my friends and I were using it to give away free music for data. Yeah. And using that to make our living. Um, we started with 12 artists on the site, every one of whom were people I knew, mm-hmm. people like Katie Herzig, people like uh, Joy uh, Williams and Civil Wars, all of whom I've known. They were all just getting started at the time, gave away a lot of free music that really helped them to start a lot of them start their careers. Yeah. And here we are five years later. We've got, I don't know, 20 some odd thousand artists on the site giving away free music. Wow. We give away well over a half million full albums a month wow. on the site. Um, we've just moved vertically out of music into book publishing, so now we're giving away a free free ebooks, audiobooks. Yeah. It's our exact same model, data for ebooks, audiobooks. Wow. We're going to probably move into several other platforms this year. Yeah. Um, and you know we are uh, we we and we our company is uh you know is in the black and we make a lot of money. We're still bootstrapped. We own yeah. it. It's like the kids running the candy store. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm somehow barely a high school graduate, the CEO of a company. I don't know how that happened. Uh-huh. But the but, so got, but bad, the opportunity. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, so, so as as a result, it's just eclipsed my music career. Yeah. And it's gotten to the point where it needs my full attention. So I've stepped. Um, I've I've committed a year to it. Um, uh, to not. I'm gonna put. I'm putting my music career on hold for a year to to step up i mean i tried to ceo it part-time it just didn't work yeah and so now i'm i'm spending my full time running our company and uh and i love it as much as i love the music side you know um it's as much a disruptive um uh it's as much a disruptive idea on the music side um it it, it's very much in line with my wiring yeah yeah, you know um so yeah i love the work yeah the the bad news is that you're now good at more than just music right well (laughs) It's it's the one As time a in my life. As a noise trade customer. Yeah. You know. Well, it's the one time in my life where I determined there, you know, there, there, um, yeah, there is. There's actually something else, but it's by way of music. I learned yeah. I learned some new tr- some new tricks. Okay. My 20 years in the music business. Yeah. But, uh, it's such a it's such a cool and great model. I got I, I download stuff all the time. You know. Cool. It's like yeah, okay, you guys can have my data. Uh, this is a good record. I'll take it. Yes, you know. Yeah. Um, and Google's already it, doing it. Why, and why it puts the artists in a good in a good position to own the relationships yeah. with their fans and to be able to call upon those fans to support them. Yeah. They're still going to get you. Here's the thing: if you wind up downloading a record from Noise Trade and you give your data, right, and you wind up as a huge fan of, a, of an album you wouldn't have otherwise downloaded or known right. about or found an artist you wouldn't have known about, and it, but you but you you are a big fan, right? Then they will get your money. Yeah, they will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't mind giving my stuff out for free. Yeah. Because if the people I give it to for free, if they wind up loving it, resonating with it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will get their money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's right. no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just like the bands that I'm in the tribe of, like Arcade Fire, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, yeah. When they put their new fan, their new record on for sale, I go directly to them to buy it two yeah. months before it hits iTunes. I'm not waiting for the more convenient, yeah. trusted method. I want to go straight to them. I'll right. give them as much as they ask for, if not more. Yeah. Um, I can't wait to support them because I love them. I support them. I resonate with them. So the new music business. Here's the takeaway: the new the new music business is no longer about being in the record, the music selling, the record selling business. Yeah. It is about the tribe building business. Yes. Yeah. If you can build your tribe, if you can find that group of that even small group of people who understand, love, and support what you do. Right. Um, then uh, money is not your problem. Right. They cannot wait to support you. They will give you more than they than yeah, you ask yeah, for. Yeah. If your ego can bear not being uh, a household name and making seven figures in a in a mm-hmm. calendar year. There is a great living to be made in the music space, in the publishing space even, yeah, yeah. in the filmmaking space. Yeah. There's a great living to be made connecting with your tribe yeah. um, 
you know, uh, it's, there's disruption happening across the board. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I love being part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, I love Seth. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, well, there you have it. A little bit of bonus career advice for all of you out there with... Uh, I was taking notes. I, I, was, I was, too. I was, too. It's been a great visit. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us. I think we'll go out with wedding dress. Can we do that? Sure. Boy. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, once again, Derek, thanks. And to yeah, listeners, a lot. Uh, keep listening for... Keep, keep on the lookout for episode 5001. It'll be coming your way shortly. Couple of months here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. If you could love me as a wife, for my wedding gift, your life, should that be all I'll ever need? Is there more I'm looking for? Go.